Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. Uh, today's April 24th. This is the second special episode we're producing amid the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we're trying to record one of these each week to help our listeners uh, keep informed about how other in-house counsel and legal professionals are addressing the issues impacting our world right now. I know it's a different time. And again, this week we're coming to you uh, remotely uh, via a WebEx, uh, WebEx call. Um, I'm excited today because we've got uh, two of my favorite guests returning uh, to the podcast. Uh, Carl Peterson is uh, Mid-Atlantic General Counsel for Titan America. Uh, you may remember him from our prior episode. And Ryan Brown, who, who I believe has been on two episodes already or maybe three, uh, he's Corporate Counsel for... <laughs> Corporate Counsel uh, for Global Operations with Rosetta Stone. We also have my partner, uh, Tabor Cathcart, joining us. So, uh, Carl, Ryan, Tabor, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Here. Absolutely a pleasure. Excited to have you. I, I thought maybe we would start off talking about um, employment issues and maybe um, and start with you, Carl. Uh, obviously, you know, I don't think any of us are uh, full-time employment lawyers, but sometimes in the first few weeks, at least of COVID-19, it felt like everyone had to be at least a partial uh, employment lawyer because we've got, you know, lots of, of changes around the law governing employment, around governing leave, around how do we handle employees that get sick? How do we deal with exposure? Um, I'm interested in what you're seeing in that area. And in particular, you know, I want today to be somewhat on lessons learned. So now that we've kind of been through this blitz month of everything up in the air, I'm interested if you see things maybe changing in around the employment context or employment law areas. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, it, it's been very interesting, obviously, but um, one thing that, that we've learned is that we need to follow our gut, right? So from the very beginning, um, I, I'm proud to say that we kind of mobilized our coronavirus response rather early. Middle to the end of February, in fact, we were all sitting in Miami at, at a round of corporate meetings unrelated to coronavirus, unrelated to anything, when things really started to ramp up, both here in the United States as well as, as overseas. So we put together a response team. Um, at the time, it was only about a dozen people representing legal procurement operations, each of our business unit presidents, uh, presidents uh, HR, uh, cross-functional team. And what we were doing is every day getting together for about 30 or 45 minutes to talk about where are we currently, what does the next week or two look like, and how prepared are we for what's coming. And um, this helped us not only get the things we were going to need to have on hand, uh, hand sanitizers and things like that ahead of time, but also we started talking about what are the employees saying? Because we've got about 2,400 folks uh, up and down the East Coast of the United States, all the way from New York City down through Miami. And we were um, touching base with these folks on a daily basis at, at operational levels, through HR, through management, just to see, okay, what are your concerns? What's happening uh, in your own life related to coronavirus? How do you see this impacting you? So we were hearing those concerns from the very, very beginning. So paid leave, obviously, uh, paid sick leave is something that's, that's come out of this in a very big way. That's something we started to think about end of February, early March, before the CARES Act, before the FFCRA were, were passed. And um, it was interesting because we were expecting some, some legislation to come through uh, at the federal level. And when it came, there was the, it only applied to uh, employers, 500 employees or, or fewer for the FFCRA. CARES was, was slightly different. Um, so we were, we fell outside of that because as I said, 2,500 employees, but, um, so we weren't legally obligated to do anything under FFCRA. However, you know, our guiding principle is always doing right by our people. So we, we looked to that for some guidance with respect to, okay, what is being mandated versus what are we doing? What do we want to be doing to, to help our people? So I'm proud to say that, that we had developed, I wouldn't even go so far as to call it a policy as much as a protocol for these uh, these completely uncertain times. Um, nobody knows what's coming. Uh, everybody trying to figure out where the lines are and all of this. We developed a bit of a protocol that we were, generous is probably not the right, right word, but I'd like to think we went much further than we definitely than we needed to. And I, I think much further than a lot of employers did it in being sure that 
if our folks were exposed and had to go on quarantine, if they were sick, whether with COVID-19 or, or otherwise, that they were being taken care of, um, that, that they felt that they were working for an employer who truly did have their best interests at heart. So that's a lot of words to answer to answer your question, but I guess the, the biggest thing we learned and the biggest guiding principle through this whole thing is follow your gut because our, our number one guiding principle always has been um, doing what's best for our people, being, being a caring place to work. And we found that by following that, we're, we're going beyond the legal requirements and at the same time um, fostering tons of goodwill with our people and just quite simply doing the right thing. I think that's a great lesson, and I think, yeah, that's repeated to me in several different areas where we haven't had good guidance or we haven't had a lot of clarity, and I think people are just making what they feel is the right decision and doing the right thing by their people, and that, that seems to work out um, work out well. Ryan, I'm curious about your experience at, at Rosetta Stone and what kind of things you were dealing with uh, with employees there. Yes, uh, you know, in, in many ways, it's very similar to Carl's story. Um, and I'm so proud of really just the American private sector in this situation. Um, you know, we had operations uh, in China. And so uh, as at, at the very beginning of this, we started to realize that this could be something that impacts not only our operations there, but globally. Um, and just intrinsically, government tends to be slower than business. And so, uh, you know, when our investors' dollars are on the line, we, we take um, uh, actions very quickly to protect them. And so uh, very similar to Carl's company, we established an internal committee um, and began looking at office closures. Uh, we you know, our first step was obviously closing our offices in China and sending them to a remote. And then we were able to, as a technology company, uh, switch our, comp our company globally 100% virtual, um, which is quite an achievement. Um, it's not something that many companies can do, uh, but just the nature of, um, you know, software industry, as long as you have the computers and the equipment, almost all of our workers are able to work outside of our facilities. And, and that took time and that that butts up a lot against a lot of employment uh, laws uh, in <laughs> yeah. cases, uh, not in the United States, but when we're talking internationally. Um, but we were able to do that. And I think I, I'm certainly very proud of that achievement. Uh, I know many other companies and, and perhaps Carl can speak more on this that haven't been able to go to the 100 percent virtual um, uh, office situation have sort of this Faustian bargain. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of employment litigation. That's what's keeping a lot of, um, you know, those of us in-house um, awake at night, which is, um, okay, how the law requires me to protect my employees, um, but it also requires me to respect the health privacy to a degree uh, of my employees. And so what happens when these two requirements conflict? And I know there's been, you know, an infinite amount of webinars and, the EEOC has provided some guidance on that, but it's something that, uh, you know, we'll probably have to wait and see as it gets sorts out after the crisis in the court system. Um, but those things have all been um, on the minds of a lot of in-house counsel. Uh, you know, stepping back a little bit to your original question, the employment relationship is like any other relationship. There is uh, a series of obligations and duties between the employer and the employee. Uh, what we call employment law, I've always defined as the the written legal requirements of that relationship, the things that the government uh, has said um, you must do to for each other. But there's a lot of unwritten um, requirements. And as an in, as a primarily a software company, our assets are twofold. We don't have hard assets. We don't have equipment. We don't have um, you know. Uh, oil lands and leases like the oil and gas industry, what we have are our people and our intellectual property. And so in talking about how the pandemic has changed, it's uh, reemphasizing the ability of protecting both of those things. Um, of course, the courts are closed, but uh, for the most part, but, uh, but we're trying to protect the IP in that regards. But, the, but most importantly, the people that produce that for our employees and uh, making sure that we, as Carl said, do right by them. Uh, in a difficult situation is uh, primarily our main concern here. So there's what the law requires and there's beyond that. Um, separately, uh, just speaking as an American company that does a lot of business abroad, um, it's been interesting in a lot of ACC events, we talk about um, the, the 
ability for the American senior management to make a you know employment decision. We're going to do this for employees X. We're going to do something great. We're going to you know our companies roll on to unlimited unlimited quote unquote vacation and some other initiatives. How do, or we're going to have everyone work from home. How does that deploy? Uh, how does that materialize outside of the United States, where all my employees are employee contracts, and even fairly, um, you know, little l liberal countries like uh, the United Kingdom um, require, in some circumstances, that we uh, investigate uh, and make sure that their um, work site at home is ready to go. And so, in the in Europe, there's this concept of, you know, are we using your home office or are you just working remotely? And there's there's a legal distinction there that doesn't exist in the United States. And so it's been the back and forth, you know, how do I implement the spirit of the management team's decision to help our employees outside of the United States um, while also maintaining compliance with uh, various laws uh, outside of the U.S.? Um, and that's interesting. Yeah, no, and I hadn't, that's, that's, I haven't heard people really focus on that aspect of the remote worker versus, you know, home office thing for other countries. That's a great um, that's a great point. Carl, I want to go back to you for a minute because I know, you know, I, I imagine you have plenty of workers that could not work at home. How did you manage that balance of, you know, for, for Titan about who works at home, who doesn't, how, how are you going to draw those lines? Yeah, sure. We've got a, we've got two pretty large uh, cement manufacturing facilities, one out in Roanoke, Virginia, and then one in South Florida, just outside of Miami. Um, Roanoke has been a little bit easier because Botetourt County, which is where Roanoke is located, has, has fared rather well. They only have a, a handful of cases of coronavirus. They're very isolated out there, so it's less of a concern. South Florida is a very, very different story, and uh, that that is the machine that keeps the company going. So in addition to um, rolling out work from home, we were pretty proactive in terms of doing that at, at all of our corporate centers where folks were able to work from home. Then there's another layer of our logistics team, for example. We have what we call the hub down in South Florida that handles our logistics, our uh, dispatch, and ordering for all of our ready-mix plants in the state of Florida. We had thought far enough ahead to figure out all the tech and everything that we needed to get set up at those folks' homes for them to be able to work from home and have kind of a seamless customer experience. So, so we were forward thinking in that regard. And to your point, we've got all these folks at the plants, right? At the aggregate plant, at the cement plant, who, who are coming to work every day. And we want those folks not only, you know, we are essential services under all of these government mandates that, that have been issued, but um, that doesn't mean those folks must come to work. We, we want them to feel safe coming to work. We want them to, to, to know that we're taking care of them. So uh, PPE requirements, we were, we were ahead of the curve on, on virtually all of the PPE requirements that we needed. We had rolled out social distancing um, kind of as soon as the, that guidance came out, we had started to put that out. And we had pretty rigid, we're a very, very safety-oriented company every day. And it just amplified under the, under the coronavirus uh, umbrella, if you will. Um, started instituting temperature checks as soon as the, uh, as the as the Department of Labor said that that was something that could be done. We started started doing that at our site. Not that that was dispositive, of course, but it creates an environment where people feel just a little bit safer. A little bit of a uh, uh, of a factor here was we were actually. As soon as these were, were being rolled out, all of these, the Florida executive order, for example, was rolled out on day two of our outage, where we shut down the entire plant to do all of our yearly maintenance and repair. So we had folks who were scheduled to come in from overseas. We had folks coming in from all over the United States to um, come into our facility and conduct all of these repairs, heavy engineering. Um, all of this work had to be done. So we had to finesse not only keeping the operation going, but successfully completing that outage so that we could start the kiln back up and be creating cement on schedule. So we, we had a lot of balls in the air as it, as it related to keeping these folks safe and, and letting them know that, that we were intent on taking care of them. And at the same time, we're, we're having calls and, and trying to balance the, the work from home and the ability for folks like you and me to get on webinars and have meetings like this versus folks who had to go into the dirty, dusty plant every day and have meetings on site. So we put up extra tents on site for people to have breaks so that they could still have the, the social distancing aspects that we had masks available and gloves, gloves available so they could go to work, they could carry out their, their job while social distancing, while wearing all the proper PPE. Um, but if someone came to us and said, for reasons X, Y, and Z, I'm not feeling safe being at work today, that needed to be something we needed to be able to address as well. 
So we opened up pretty open lines of communication all the way from the operational level all the way up through executive management. Going back to the team that I referenced before, um, the, 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 you know, the executive management team of the entire company was listening to the frontline concerns of our people on a daily basis just to be sure that, that we weren't pu putting folks in harm's way either knowingly or um, not allowing them to voice their concerns in such a way that they were being heard. So I'm not sure that that's a direct response to your question, but, but I will tell you it was, it was a very delicate approach that we had to take because not only um, to, to Ryan's point, do you have the legal obligations and then kind of the social obligations, but, but you've got who we are as a company from a character perspective and integrity, those, those guiding principles. Um, wanted to make sure to uphold those even, if, even in these uncertain times because these, these times are going to pass, right? And when they do, you need to come out on the other side reflecting everything that you've reflected throughout the 100-year history of your company so that way folks feel that sense of loyalty back to you. That's great. That's great. Let me shift gears a little bit and think about post-COVID. I mean, you're right. We're going to get past this. And I may start with you, Tabor, but I'm interested in, in Ryan and you, Carl, your perspectives. We've seen this huge you know, shift to everyone working at home when they can. And I know, Tabor, you've got a lot of financial institution clients that are sending huge numbers of people you know, working from home. You know, what I'm wondering is, are those people all going to come back to a traditional office? Are they going to want to come back? Um, or do we want to house them in the office and pay for that commercial lease space? You know, how is this going to impact that dynamic? We're kind of being forced to do a two or three month social experiment where we've got companies like Ryan's going all remote. And I just wonder what it's going to mean for return. Tabor, any, any thoughts on what you're either seeing or hearing from clients in that area? No, it, it is interesting. And I, um, I represent, um, I do, I represent banks and, and borrowers facilities but from the bank standpoint um, I think this was something that everybody would have said was not possible you know the bankers can't work from home I mean there's regulatory you know privacy secure all that kind of stuff and um, and then all of a sudden everybody is and it's it's working even traders even um, you know folks that are in the capital markets uh, they're, they're they're able to do it from home and so I do think there's a shift and particularly managers, the bankers who are kind of out selling deals and, and with new new clients, um, they, they can do that from anywhere also, and, and they don't necessarily need an office. Um, so I think you'll, I think you'll see some shift and some, some reallocation of resources, uh, you know, real estate and all that. Interesting. Ryan, what about you? You said everyone's gone remote. Is that going to, you know, go back to quote normal or what's it going to look like post COVID? Um, that's a that's a very good question. I think that uh, not just our. And I expect team. you to have a concrete answer, so everyone knows. <laughs> you know, um, our company has been we're a mid-sized firm that's publicly traded that operates around the world on a very small, um, you know. But we're not we're not a huge company, and and we have maybe 1,200, 1,300 employees, um, many of which are part time. And so we had uh, largely become a decentralized company. Um, our largest office, I think, is in Harrisonburg, Virginia, followed by uh, where I work, Arlington, Virginia. But we had, over the past five or six years, largely started to decentralize, to uh, push to um, smaller offices with more um, more of our employees working remotely, and, and many of our employees requested that. I myself, like our legal department, won the ACC National Capital Regions. Uh, innovation award uh, three years ago for largely our work-life balance in the legal department. Um, uh, you know, I work from home two days a week, so my colleagues work from home more. Um, it's my choice to go into the Arlington office, you know, three days a week, and and I find that that works for me. So I think that companies will be taking a long, hard look at um, what office space we actually need. You know, it's this this sort of sacrosanct thing. I have to have an office. I have to have these other things. But if we're working well in others. Um, Perhaps that's something that we will consider. Interesting, interesting. And and Carl, what what about uh, for Titan? I mean, do you think people are going to take a new perspective on remote work? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, I think they will. Um, I was actually uh, just chatting before we got started here today with Ashley, um, chatting a little bit about the fact that I, for one, I love being home with my family. I love being home with my kids, but I can't wait to get back to the office just because I feel like um, 
the whole dynamic of, of the working day has changed being at home for me. I'm used to being at the office, you know, some, some weeks, 60 hours a week. However, when I, when I step away from the office, I come home and I'm home. Um, whereas now I'm, I'm, at, I'm in my office all the time. I'm at home all the time. That, that line between church and state has been somewhat separated. So um, it, it's a little bit tricky, but the, the question has already started to come up. What's it going to look like for us when we go back? And our industry is a little bit unique in that, like I said before, we've got folks who have to be at the plant so that way we can make the product that we're pushing out that we're selling every day. Um, I am in a support function in the legal department. Uh, we have tons of finance folks, tons of HR folks who all fall into that category as well. Um, and I think the presence that we want to have is we are in the office every day supporting the business. And we want that, that sense of, you know, you folks are there all the time. We're going to be here all the time supporting you. So I think that the push will be um, to, to get back to the office. We'll have some remote work options available to us. And, and this has taught us a lot of very valuable lessons on, on the how and the what and the when to push those buttons. But I do think that to the extent possible, we're going to, to kind of transition back to where we were. A lot of things are going to be different, but I, I don't think we're going to materially change our approach in terms of having folks in the office versus at home. I think we're just a, a lot more geared toward that, that central office sort of, of thinking. Gotcha. I like to divide it, you know, when we look at our office spaces between, um, okay, what types of work are we doing? Uh, are we doing deep work where someone needs to sit at a computer and research something for hours on end? Are we doing collaborative work where we need to talk to our colleagues in real time? Uh, and so areas in between, like ad hoc space where you do some uh, independent work together with other people. And so I, I think for me, it's always been a balance. Uh, like Carl, I couldn't be at home every day, but two days a week for me, I found is the right balance. Uh, that's when I do my deep work where I'm doing engaged in documents, engaged in responding to more complex emails and research. And then uh, usually three days a week, I'm in the um, office with my colleagues and I use those that time to collaborate, to uh, go into other people's offices, to you know, whiteboard things and have that sort of informal talk. Because I find that informal talk is the hardest thing to replicate from a remote perspective. And yet, as lawyers, we work in a seminar fashion. We, we feed off of each other. And you know, law is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. And so finding ways to do that remotely from the corporate law complex, uh, context has been a challenge. And so I'm looking forward to getting back. But I, I do think that the legal being as little little L conservative as it is, I know from a litigation perspective, uh, uh, you know my colleagues or friends that are trial attorneys uh, are, are getting used to the idea that, gosh, I can do something remotely. I can hold a hearing. You know, my best friend is a, a trial attorney, and he had a appellate hearing yesterday, um, and the judges asked, asked nothing uh, remotely. Um, yeah, they just kind of let him go, and so it's interesting to see our profession writ large um, adjust to this reality and hopefully some of the things that really have the need to catch up with the 21st century will will get there as a result of it. Sometimes it takes a crisis. Well, and one thing that I find very interesting is, so I sit, yeah, currently sitting in Virginia Beach, I work in Norfolk. So um, I support business all over, as I said before, up and down the East Coast from New York to Miami. Um, so oftentimes the folks I'm working with aren't even in the office where, where I'm sitting. So I actually think within my organization, legal is a little bit of an anomaly because we're bouncing around and we're supporting people all over the place versus like our finance team all sits together and they support the folks who are literally sitting in that building with them in most cases anyway. So I probably travel on average about two days a week, um, give or take, but it, it just depends. I'm in Florida all the time, every, every couple of weeks or so. Um, so I guess I'm somewhat used to picking up my computer and going, and I can work in a hotel if I need to. I can work in a, in a coffee shop, and I do with, with some regularity. So for me, the biggest difference here has been when I'm not in the office, I'm sitting at home versus sitting in, in far-flung places all up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, but, but as I said, within our organization, you have an awful lot of that collaborative work and the requirement for those folks to be sitting, sitting near to one another. So th there may be some things that we can take away from this and implement, but uh, if nothing else, as you said, this has been a grand social experiment. I think for kind of everybody in the country, everybody in the world for that matter, um, to at least uh, do a bit of an acid test and see kind of what does my business look like if X, Y, or Z is taken away from me. Um, it's been very interesting.
I agree. I agree. Let me shift gears for a minute, because I, I do want to talk force majeure. It does seem like there's been there's been a lot of articles and webinars. What's interesting to me is no one was talking about force majeure, you know, before this pandemic. Um, and now I'm getting asked questions on a daily basis about uh, what is force majeure? Can I use it to get out of this contract? We can't deliver because we're shut down. We can't perform, um, you know, because because of this uh, restriction, what does that mean? How do I get out of the contract or how do I avoid damages uh, for delay? I'm wondering, you know, and we could talk, I, I'm less interested right now in kind of how we've seen it, but I'm wondering if this is gonna change, um, you know, future use of force majeure. Are we gonna be having pandemic clauses? Is this gonna become more common? Ryan, I know you've thought, you've been a fan of force majeure clauses for a while. Do you, do you think we're gonna see, you know, the, the renaissance of force majeure? What's gonna happen uh, in this area? I do, I do. I'm a bit of a legal drafting nerd when I'm not doing, my, my, my twin hats are, you know, global labor and employment, but also uh, transactions. And so, you know, there, there has been a movement in legal uh, contract drafting for quite some time. Um, and especially for those of us who are, are not are not billing by the hour in, uh, in in the corporate context, it's particularly popular for us to just simplify what the contract says, you know, making sure it's clear, removing archaic language that um, sometimes our clients want uh, because it's, it's the legal sort of uh, magic words that they think gives it some special legal power and therefore they're getting their money by paying their lawyer, um, you know. So there's been a trend to the simplification of a lot of contracts and a hard examination as to what elements of legal boilerplate uh, are actually needed. Where are you actually going to litigate? What do you really need? Versus having a, a 10, 100 page agreement that takes time and time is, is literally money in, a, in our company's context to negotiate each of these elements where there might be you know, lawyers on multiple sides fighting. I've been a I, I've been a proponent of that movement, but I have been very protective of the force majeure clause, just because I find it's an interesting, neat thing where they try to put the boilerplate in it. Um, I, my highlight of my career, I think, is writing zombie apocalypse into it uh, to make a point with uh, another attorney at another company, uh, and he loved it, and we had a good laugh after uh, after uh, you know some tense negotiations. But you know, it, it is an object of both common law and you know, state statutory law as to how it works. When things go wrong, if the idea of a contract is that there's a meeting of the minds on both sides, what happens when they're anticipate at, uh, unanticipated events? How do we divide risks? Um, you know, realistically in our company, <laughs> I've never ever invoked a force mature clause until now. Uh, and now I've invoked them a lot recently. And it's uh, primarily for us in the um, events Space. Uh, so uh, we've had events, we've had meetings set up, we've had a lot of travel set up, and so we've had to obviously either move or cancel a lot of those contracts. And, uh, and, and the ones that had force majeure were, uh, were the ones that we were able to save, so at least I think. But uh, always consult your local rules because Texas will read it verbatim, and this is why lawyers write every possible thing that could ever go wrong in that paragraph because there's always a jurisdiction like Texas that says, well, you didn't say zombie apocalypse, so uh, we're not going to cover you for that. That's good. Carl, anything to the thoughts on force majeure? In, in yeah, it, it's interesting. On the supply side, luckily, um, we operate in an industry where we're, we're producing cement, ready-mix concrete, aggregate, et cetera, but availability and uptime is always a bit of a concern of ours. So we always bake certain provisions in, in to cover us, not necessarily under force majeure, but um, sale of materials as available. Because if our plant goes down, we can't produce cement, we have to go on allocations and we have real problems. Um, so most of our supply side contracts, uh, we haven't even had to look to force majeure because we've had this out for availability and certain things beyond our control. On the buy side, it's, it's been rather interesting because, um, you know, I, you start to think about some of the impacts of declaring a force majeure. I guess there's a couple of things to consider. Force majeure often excludes uh, payment obligations, right? So the first question I was asked was, <clears throat> well, can we you know, our office is closed, can we stop making rent payments because force majeure? And I was like, well, that's, that's not quite how it works. Um, you know, for, for rent, it's usually excluded, and you go into the, rent, into the uh, rental contracts, and quite often it'll say, with the exception of payment obligations here under. But then there are additional things that I think are triggered when you, when you declare a force majeure, right? So if there's, uh, it, it, you have to declare a rational basis, especially on a payment, if you're going to somehow say, um, this is a force majeure, therefore I shouldn't have to make a payment under this contract. I think you actually have to draw and show something that says it is impossible or, or highly impractical for me to be able to make this payment. 
Um, so then does that give your contracting partner rights under uh, further financial assurances? If for some reason you're making this claim because cash flows are super tight, does this now give them the right to go out and seek um, letters of credit or additional guarantees or things like that? So it's not just as simple as saying, man, I, I really wish we didn't have to pay that contract this month. Um, but but to, to Ryan's point, in um, the context of the actual force majeure clause and the use of the word pandemic, I had, I had actually started to see it over the course of the last couple of years where people had baked in pandemic. A lot of folks hadn't, but something happened in the Supreme Court of, of Pennsylvania, I want to say it was last week or perhaps the week before, where they came out and called the COVID-19 pandemic a natural disaster and a catastrophe of massive proportions. And, and the concern there is, is that they've now level set. They, they have made, they have opened the door. Not that, you know, that's going to be dispositive of any court in the land, but, but they've opened the door to maybe if you don't have pandemic specifically outlined in force majeure, it's going to be covered because it is now termed a national disaster or natural disaster. So, um, you know, I, I fancy myself a bit of a uh, drafting nerd myself, Ryan, but, uh, you know, words matter in the contracts and, and, and I tend to have folks who on my side, if they're asking legal for a contract, they don't want all of the, the boilerplate and the legalities and all of that because I've, I've got some folks in my business who are infamous for coming to me and being like, well, I want to rent this for the next 10 years, um, and I'd like the agreement to be a page and a half long. So you, know, you find yourself kind of cutting all of those things that, that are, are unnecessary. But um, in my own mind, it, it has kind of bubbled the force majeure back from being just a back burner kind of boilerplate just in case. Um, highly unlikely scenario to something that you absolutely have to consider. And I have a bit of a reputation within my organization for before we sign a contract, while we're drafting the contract, I'll come up with all, with all sorts of outside of the box, well, what, what happens if X, what happens if Y for my business people to, to consider? And they often think it's just me having a highly active imagination. But um, if there is a silver lining to be found here, it's that you never know what you have to plan for, right? Like it, it could be, it could be absolutely anything. So to your point, Ryan, about the, uh, the zombie apocalypse, sure, let's throw it all in. Let's put the kitchen sink in. Let's <laughs> make sure we're covered here. But it, it, it's, a, it's a critical provision, and I think this just, just sheds more light on that. Yeah, I think Carl uh, uh, hits on the experience that almost all of us have of, like, we need you to do a legal thing, but don't over-legal it, right? And you know, <laughs> right. my response to that is always, you know, if there was no risk in business and if everything always went as according to the deal that you've negotiated, none of us would have a job. Like, you know, there wouldn't be lawyers, there wouldn't be trial lawyers, you know, we need a contract if that was the case. So, uh, yeah, it's like you pay me to worry about the things that go wrong and negotiate a way out of that. And the, the catch-all clause uh, uh, of last resort is the force majeure clause. And if you look at it, even just reading it, just from a linguistics perspective, it almost looks like in so many of them, like a history of the world writ large, right? Of, of thing every time in the history of law that there's been something that's happened, they've added that to there. So it's like acts of God, floods, you know, the locusts, and then you get up to more modern times, it's like acts of terror, the internet going down, like lack of you know, banking liquidity, and then now we'll add pandemic to everything, <laughs> uh, something along those lines. So, well, don't forget there was a plague of locusts uh, 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 this month as well. So, you know, there was. Hey, hey, Tabor. Yeah, I guess I the, in the lending context, the uh, the material adverse change or MAE clause is often uh, kind of the the parallel to force majeure in contracts. I'm wondering if you've got folks thinking about how those clauses pay in in terms of COVID-19 as a material adverse change or events of default or what kind of things you see, you may see in some of those documents going forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and we we, we have force majeure also, but, but generally more in kind of construction type contracts and things of that nature and projects. Um, for, for MAEs, you know, this, this was probably the first conversation we started having um, and, and are continuing to have. I think the sense now and the, the way it works normally in a in a credit agreement, a material adverse effect is something that you know materially adversely affects the business or the operations, et cetera, et cetera, of the of a of a company of the borrower. <clears throat> and clearly, you know, from the outset, everyone knew that COVID would do that. But it's a really high standard um, in a credit agreement to call an MAE because basically it means that whatever that event is. Um, is keeping the borrower from being able to perform, you know, on their obligations, keeping them from being able to run their business. Um, no, under normal circumstances, they're very rarely 
employed. I mean, they show up, you, you know, sometimes you'll have a specific MAE default. Um, more often, it'll be a qualifier in your reps and warranties. Um, you know, there may be kind of a, a there, certainly there'd be a notice requirement if you thought there was going to be an MAE, uh, you know, it just depends on how it's drafted. Calling an MA, an actual MAE default is just, you know, really extreme and, and lenders really want to stay away from that and historically have stayed away from that. It's just very hard. It's not black and white and it would be difficult to prove. Um, in this case, however, this is the first time in my career including going through 08 and 9 and 10 and, and the financial crisis and, and all the carnage from that, this is the first time that I can remember a real substantive discussion around MAE and, you know, what it, what it looks like, how it could be employed, who's going to call it, when do you call it. You know, we had at the outset of this a lot of really big borrowers with big credit facilities drawing down on their revolvers, you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars apiece because they were worried about their own cash crunches and, and, and they were allowed to do that. I mean, they, you know, they were meeting the, the qualifications under the agreement and, and that was fine and banks had to fund obviously and wanted to, but it put a real constraint on um, the, the capital in the banking system, um, which I think has, has begun to kind of work itself out now. Now there's different issues, but um, fortunately the banks were very healthy going into this. So, you know, the money was there, but it does begin to raise the question at some point kind of to, to, you know, as you guys were talking about legal drafting and these things that, that never really come up that now are coming up, you know, you're starting to look at, well, what does an MAE really look like? And are we there or are we going there? And can, you know, will that become a barrier, um, a potential barrier for borrowers to, to borrow under their facilities, um, you know, otherwise? So it's, it's, it's a moving target. It's a, it's a developing conversation for sure, but one that I think over the next couple of months and couple of quarters will will probably, you know, gather some more steam. Speaking of uh, finance on that topic, I think it brings up something that's very interesting, which is, you know, I, I, I know it seems like Carl's done the same thing, but I, I was reading legislation uh, in real time, almost as soon as they could post it to thomas.gov for the PPE, PPP, especially regarding paid leave, but other obligations. And uh, some of the other laws that have come down from Washington. And it's been very interesting. There was a, a good article in the editorial uh, section of the Wall Street Journal several days ago, which I, I, I think represents a lot of this mid-sized firm's opinion, which is the PPP came in and that's, you know, employees 500 and under, we've got your back, you know, we'll provide all these other issues as long as they keep funding it. Um, and then the Federal Reserve set up its facilities and, um, but they've largely, including this Main Street program, they've largely just targeted high, high, high end strategic, you know, companies like the major banks and whatnot, even though it was meant for mid-sized firms as well. So everyone that's in between there, if you're not like a top 100 company that particularly if you're involved in finance and have some strategic uh, role to play in the economy, and you're not as small as 500 or under, then you're, you've been kind of left out of dry. And I know there's some legislation working through there, but it, it also um, you know, brings up the point of making sure you have a healthy government relations program because you don't want to be left out of <laughs> these operations here. And a good chunk of the American business has been so far, those of us in between those two areas. Yeah, no, I think I think you you raise a really good point, and and I mean obviously you know, I, and I'll I'll give the government credit, sure that they're working very hard to get some money out the door, and I give the banks a lot of credit that they're working really hard to get it to the right places. Um, the programs, in giving the benefit of the doubt, will say it's because of a time crunch and you know just lack of ability to really work through the, the details. But the programs that were rolled out, I mean the PPP, the, fir the first round of the PPP program was a you know, just a, a disaster and kind of put a train wreck on the banks to try to figure out how to manage it. And the PPP round two is, I think, only marginally better. Um, but, 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 you know, with good intent, it's just this, because of the urgency and the timing um, it, it has been so insane in this, in this period of time. The Main Street program is no different. I think actually that's meant to, and there is in the CARES Act, they talk about another mid-market program that is different from the Main Street program. And I think a lot of people think the Main Street is supposed to be that mid-market program. I think it's the mid-market program that you're probably referring to or, or that band um, you know, of companies that, that hasn't been addressed yet. And I, I don't know why that is, and I think it's coming. The Main Street program is meant to also target and help those mid-market kind of mid-level companies. The problem with the Main Street program is, is they've 
put these leverage requirements and these, you know, certain lender requirements and, and borrower requirements in it that, that really cause um, issues for a lot of potential borrowers that may not fit right into this tight box that I'm not sure they intentionally created. Um, but that's kind of the way it is. So we actually um, have been in, in working kind of hand in hand with some of the, the trade organizations on comment back to the Fed. Those of us that are in the market, in the industry, and, and, and know how these loans you know, have to work and how the borrowers work to, to try to get them to, to, to retool some of those um, parameters so that it is actually accessible for more companies and the companies that, that actually need it and, and you know, would benefit from it. So more to come, hopefully soon. <laughs> That's that's a great point, and you know I, I say this not on behalf of my company uh, in any official capacity, but simply speaking for many similarly situated companies, where I say you know I, I run my company well, you know there's we don't have debt, we weren't doing crazy things, you know the company was well managed, and here I here comes along the pandemic, and you know the finance credits that are out there. Um, are, okay, here's all these things you can't do, right? And no board and no C-level man senior management uh, wants to be constrained by things if you don't have to. So what happens is companies that are otherwise solvent that you know are not in a critical situation are going to hoard cash, and that's what we're seeing. Hoard cash, lay off employees, right? Uh, furlough employees that you don't need, and just turtle it, right? That's what they're going to do if you have the option to do that in this section of the economy. And many, many companies have done that. And um, so if the policy goal of the United States government uh, is to avoid that, right, to avoid this laying off and this, this cash hoarding in the areas, then uh, I would say with Ashley, we, you need to make sure that these, that these alternate lines of credit are available for those that aren't in desperate straits, right? They can weather it. Um, otherwise, you're just going to see mass layoffs from areas unlike hospitality or industry that, you know, yeah, you could employ them, but hey, let's save cash because we don't know what's going to happen down the road. That uncertainty. Yeah, well, you're, that that's exactly right. And, and, you know, the PPP loans for the smaller businesses are meant to be forgiven. So they're, they're really more like grants if they, if they use them for exactly what they need to. And, you know, that's how it's designed. And, but the main street programs, those are not for, forgivable, you know, forgivable loans. They're real loans that will tick at a real interest rate and have real sort of, you know, substantive requirements in there. And so there's no reason why, they shouldn't be broader, more broadly accessible. You know, to your point, if you've got companies that are very healthy and don't carry debt, um, the way they're the Main Street program is written right now, you almost have to have an existing credit relationship in some sort of facility in order to access an expanded, you know, Main Street loan. And and that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, it, it may make sense in some areas, but but it's certainly not in all. And so. Um, I think that's exactly, you know, those are some of the types of things that, that hopefully the Fed will, will recognize um, that it needs to be fixed and, and, and do that quickly so that it does work for companies. Because the, it's, not, it's not a great result for anybody, um, you know, for companies to hoard cash and lay off employees that, you know, and, and including the company doesn't, you know, doesn't want to start there. Um, but if you're given no other choice when you're looking at, you know, how do we survive through this? I mean, you're going to do what you have to do. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have some more better tools in our toolbox in the coming days. Sounds good. <clears throat> well, I, I do. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what, if there is another wave of stimulus and what it looks like and what companies end up, you know, being the recipients. I think that's, uh, that is definitely one of the things I'm watching. Uh, I don't think we have a good, a real good insight into what's coming next. I wanted to, in terms of lessons learned or surprises, let me go back to you, Carl. I'm interested in your perspective as, uh, you know, in-house counsel with, you know, a company that's doing the manufacturing and stuff. What, what do you think as a society caught us most off guard with this COVID pandemic? And, and do you think there'll be systemic changes to try to prevent, you know, the next kind of shock? Any thoughts on that? I know that's a deeper question. It is. Um, I'd say from, from my own seat, you know, PPE, like I said, we are a very safety-oriented company in, in what can be at times a very dangerous industry in terms of mining and, and blasting and some of the things that we have to do. Um, but the, the sort of PPE we were carrying before all of this had nothing to do with face masks and hand sanitizers and things like that. Um, so, so that was our biggest test very, very quickly, because as I referenced, 
we, these folks were continuing to come to work. We had, you know, 1,000 plus employees who were continuing to come to the plant every day. So we need to be prepared with, with anything and everything that they could have, could have needed. Um, back in December, you know, could you make the argument that maybe the writing was on the wall when this started to kind of percolate overseas? Sure, but I, I think nine people out of 10, if you were to ask them, um, you know, is there going to be a run on hand sanitizer in the next four months? They'd have told you no, absolutely not. So, you know, you can't stay in front of any and all eventuality. But um, for for me, with, with my own organization, that this, this is shed a, a massive light on emergency response response preparedness. Um, we have uh, we have our own uh, operations in, in Florida, in the Carolinas, even in Virginia and New York, that are hit somewhat frequently by. Uh, hurricanes and other natural disasters and things like that. So we have emergency response plans as they relate to a three-day, a five-day, a seven-day power outage, inability to deliver goods and, and interruptions to our supply chain. What this has forced us to do is kind of go back to the drawing board and okay, say, okay, what if we're talking about something more extended? Um, what if we're talking about two months where uh, we can't get people um, even within our business from New York to Florida, from Florida, because, we, for example, we have, we have one individual who's responsible for oversight of both our Roanoke plant as well as our Florida plant. Um, and can they still technically go get on an airplane and go from Virginia to Florida? Sure. Is that the best look to put somebody on a plane twice a week to do that? No. Um, so coming up with these responsive plans to say, okay, what does our business look like if everybody has to shelter in place, whether because of COVID-19, whether because of a hurricane, or who knows what else? Who's going to be on the response team? Who's going to be responsible for decision-making? Um, and, and we're somewhat lucky in that our upper-level management is close enough to the business to be able to communicate in a real-time basis through things like WebEx. My familiarity with WebEx has everything to do with my participation in our executive committee for our company. but. Um, you know, uh, other folks may not be as fortunate where they have that level of connection. So putting something on the shelf, uh, you know, back to your question about what have we learned and what can we be doing now, um, putting something on the shelf to be able to roll out if something like this should come up in the future. That's been, that's been a big, big thing for us. Um, but, but the thing that truly caught us off guard was, um, I hate to keep coming back to the PPE, but that, for us, that, that was just the most critical thing. Um, some of the technology pieces like laptops and webcams and things like that for our folks to be able to work remotely. Did we have extended supply chain issues with that? Yes. Did it take a long time for us to get some of it? Sure it did. But we were able to move those assets around within the company. But um, it, it's very difficult to look at an employee with a straight face and say, I expect you to be here tomorrow to operate the plant so we can continue to be productive um, without also having that PPE there to protect them. So maintaining great relationships with all of our vendors and suppliers, um, establishing new relationships and having the ability to, to leverage those when we can. Um, one other thing is uh, to, to Ryan's point about kind of reading this legislation as it's coming out and having good government relations teams and all of that. Um, gover governors issuing orders, stay at home orders, shelter in place orders, et cetera, that have to be interpreted and um, crafted in such a way that both protect your business, protect your people, um, but you've got clarity with respect to what they're saying, right? So we've got good inroads here in Virginia is a great example. When the governor issued his order, he pretty pretty directly dealt with uh, with construction and exempting construction as an essential service. So that was very, very clear to us um, because of that relationship we have. In other jurisdictions, it wasn't quite so clear. So you find yourself operating in a gray area where you don't want to run afoul of what the, the legislative mandate is, or in this case, the gubernatorial uh, mandate, but um, you want to continue to, to operate where you can, not just to protect the bottom line of the company, but to keep people gainfully employed, right? Uh, I mean, um, there's, there's dueling interests here, both in terms of the company as well as the employees. So uh, having that line of communication with those folks in power to be able to know 100% yes, we're, we're, we're operating within the letter of the law and we're protecting our people, but we're still performing an essential function. That's great. That's great. What about you, Ryan? Where do you think we got caught most off guard and, you know, is that going to be different? I mean, we've got a different perspective, I imagine, PPE less the issue, but what, what do you see as the kind of the biggest surprise? 
Yeah, you know, there's an old quote from uh, Eisenhower that says, uh, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Um, you know, our business, and I think, you know, most businesses of a certain size have done a lot of contingency planning um, already. We have all these books dusted off and, you know, the under lock and key that, that cover almost any eventuality. And we, we meet routinely to figure out go wrong you know what happens when the whole species suites on a plane who's designated survivor like what happens if there's a cyber attack let's game these issues out um and i'm not going to say that there wasn't a plan for pandemic but certainly that the way that this one has occurred has i i would be shocked if it was on anyone's plan right yeah and um you know we have plans to shut down offices but shut them down this quick and the uh as as it, i mean it was almost overnight we were looking at china we're like well maybe this could be isolated, we'll just stop travel, an essential travel to various offices. And then almost overnight, this thing just rapidly, uh, you know, traveled the globe and we shut down all the offices. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it emphasizes the need for the company to be agile um, and not rely, uh, you know, to, to go through the process of contingency planning for a lot of these things, but to understand that in any given crisis, the company is going to be facing something that is not going to be planned bullet point by bullet point in a binder. And so developing the, the sort of creative and thinking on your feet exercises and going through the muscle memories of exercising these contingency plans, I think um, is, is, again, a silver lining of this thing. It's something that we'll, we'll, we'll take going forward. Um, had another point, but at this point, I had another point. I just went blank on it. <laughs> That's all right. And well, tape, Ryan, go ahead, Carl. Uh, just piggybacking off of that for a second, Ryan, it, it's interesting because one of the drumbeats that I've been that I've been very guilty of hammering on for the last several weeks is when all of this is behind us, uh, the, the one thing I really want to get in front of is a detailed after action review. We're pretty good at that as it relates to specific government projects and things that we're working on to see how we did. But for this, man, I would love to do a bit of a post-mortem on this to see, okay, what did we know? When did we know it? And how did we respond? What could we have done differently? Not so much from a, man, I think another pandemic is coming in 18 months or two years, but whatever the next thing is, right? To, to, to memorialize this and quite literally come up with a, with a written report of how we responded, what worked, what didn't. So that way, if and when, you know, it, it becomes a learning opportunity. Uh, create a case study out of this so that you can learn about how, how your company responds, how your company communicates and all that. Because to, to Ryan's point, this, this quite literally did escalate overnight. I mean, it, I'm sure everybody on the call can remember, I'm a bit of a sports guy. So I was on my couch the night that there was the, the basketball game between the Utah Jazz and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And tip was delayed by about 40 minutes. They couldn't figure out why. And then all of a sudden the news broke that uh, Rudy Gobert, the guy for the, the player for the Jazz, had coronavirus, and they canceled the game. They had a, 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 a whole arena full of people, and they said, everything's okay, but everybody go home. And then within 20 minutes it came out that uh, that was when Tom Hanks was diagnosed, and, and they made that public. And it was very strange because I'm a big Twitter guy. And you could see all of this kind of unfolding in real time on Twitter. And then within 20, 24 hours, they canceled all of the, the conference tournaments for the basketball tournament. And then next thing you know, they, they canceled the March Madness tournament. And very quickly, that snowballed. And within like 72 hours, all of a sudden, like my kids are out of school for the balance of the year. <laughs> and it's, it's just wild how this caught fire. And, you know, it, it's tough to pinpoint it to that one NBA game. And I don't think that that was necessarily it. But to me, that was the, the first very public, very um, vocal um, embodiment of this in the United States. And I think that's when everybody took a step back and said, whoa, because immediately the NBA suspended their season at, at like on a, on a moment's notice. And I kind of was kidding about it at work the next day. I said, you know, I think this is, this is really the, the, the straw that's going to break the camel's back because it's the kind of thing that people turn on their televisions and they see and it hits them very close to home. So it, it's just wild to kind of look back and see how within 72 hours or so, everything changed. I, I would agree exactly to that timing, Carl. Uh, but, uh, you know, before that, I was at a conference that, that we hosted for our sales employees, an annual sales conference at Dulles Airport. Um, and I remember getting the alert on my phone saying that 
this there is this new virus in Wuhan and it might be you know they think it might be human to human transition whatever day that was they announced that oh it might be actually spreading from person to person and I was there with our Chinese delegation and so I just took my drink and I walked to the complete other side of the, the room and I didn't <laughs> talk to anyone um, and so the next day at, 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 well after that conference wrapped we uh, ended all is non-critical travel to China we ended all travel to China to and from China period we ended all non-essential um, travel to East Asian countries uh, that were in the immediate proximity of China for our little part and then it hit Seattle almost the next week uh, almost a week or two after that where we have a major office and so we had to close that office pretty quickly um, and but at that point it was still an isolated thing until the the days that Carl mentioned and then almost overnight it hit Germany hit UK where we have offices and then in the United States and so we uh, had the apocalypse day where we all were just decided we're going to have remote starting tomorrow <laughs> yep. yeah who, who knew the canary in the mine was going to be Tom Hanks right I mean that's really where, <laughs> where everything kind of fell apart I think one of the, one thing that you guys said that is that is really interesting um, that was kind of buried in both of what you guys were just saying is looking back and 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 looking at the timeline and figuring out exactly I mean aside from you know the NBA and the NCAA and those dates but but for your organization what day did you know what and how rapidly did you employ certain things? Because I know just about everybody I talked to, including in our own firm, you know, you'll say, gosh, do you remember that first day in the firm where, you know, we started talking about coronavirus or do you remember what happened next? And everybody has the same reaction. You know, it happened on one day and then we were all home basically four days later, whatever. And it just, things went so fast, but nobody, off the top of your head can, you know, it's really hard other than those first initial big events that happened to then recreate what happened over the next call it seven days um, where basically everything in the world changed. Uh, and it would just be, I think when you're looking at how to plan for the next thing, whatever that thing is, and just how did our company navigate this and how agile were we and to really go back with a calendar and everything and sit down and, and piece it back together the whole timeline um, will just be really telling and, and probably really impressive, you know, for your for your own business. I mean, just to say, wow, holy cow, um, look at all these different things that happened so quickly and so well. Um, and, you know, how can we make sure that we, we can recreate that again? No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I like just looking back as we speak, you know, our company was two or more weeks ahead of the governments of the various nations, including ours, uh, in terms of like travel ban. Travel ban is kind of a loaded word, but ending travel to certain parts of the world and, and isolating our offices and our employees. Uh, it was, you know, just our little company, but um, I think it was at least one small part that we could do. And an example of how the private sector can react um, in quickly in a crisis. Yeah, and we've already started to have conversations internally about, okay, what's it going to look like? Not that we're two weeks away or three weeks away or whatever, but what's going back to work going to look like? And what's going to be the trigger for us to get ready to go back to work? And um, the same sort of, of forward-looking thinking uh, that got us out in front of the government mandates in terms of working from home and all of that is working itself through in reverse because our company's been, been very clear that um, – okay, the, go the government might say you can go back to work. We're still going to wait a couple, three weeks and kind of let this play out and see what happens. We will not be at the bleeding edge of sending folks back into the workplace. Absolutely. Just, yeah, no, I think that's a great comment, right? And you don't have to open when the government says open. Um, for listeners, too, that are struggling with back to work, Womble's doing a series of webinars looking at the environmental issues around back to work in terms of office cleanliness, separation, employment-related issues about employees wearing masks, temperature taking, um, a lot of that stuff. So uh, check out uh, the website Womble Bond Dickinson because you can. that's our next thing we're focusing on as a task force is how to get back to work, how to do it safely, how to avoid liability exposure because I do think a lot of folks are, are focused on that. Also, our state closure map, stateclosure.com, is now beginning to turn green as states open back up. So it's a 50-state map, and you can actually see what your restrictions are. If, uh, if some of our listeners have a multi-state platform, it's an easy way to see exactly what the rules are in each of, each of our 50 states. Um, 
let's see. So with that reminder to listeners about some of our resources, um, maybe let's move with a final wrap up question. Cause I know we're about out of time. I am interested. One thing you've just talked about is doing that debrief that lessons learned. Um, and I realize that that's, you know, we're not at the end stage yet to, to do that, but I'm wondering if you have a, a tip or a lessons learned for the other in-house counsel that are, you know, doing the same thing. I know I've, you guys have been super busy. It seems like all the in-house counsel I talk to, you know, are as or more busy than they were before. We read about these people sitting around binge watching Netflix, but I don't think it's most of it's not in-house lawyers that are that are doing that. We got a lot on our plates. Any any parting tips or remarks you want to give to the other in-house folks that are listening? I'll start with you, Carl. Yeah, sure. I mean. Uh... My biggest thing would be something I've touched on a couple of times throughout this, which is, you know, remember your organization's guiding principles. Our, ours is loyalty to our people and honesty with our people and, and keeping our people safe. And I, I, I'm very proud of the organization. This isn't the company line. This is my honest opinion. I'm proud of how the organization has conducted itself in terms of being straightforward with employees, um, not engaging in some of that cash hoarding and layoffs and furloughs and, and kind of leaving those as a last resort. In fact, this hit us at an interesting time because, um, you know, this is, this is a merit increase in bonus season for us uh, on an annual basis. So right in the middle of all this, the, the organization was faced with the question, okay, now what do we do? And um, with respect to about 95% of our workforce, they made the decision to move forward with the merit increases that had been decided upon from last year, as well as the payment of bonuses. And, and they understood that this is a critical step because this is, this is a, a decision point for us where we need to show our people, we need to put our, our money where our mouth is almost quite literally, because we, we tell them about loyalty, we tell them about how critical they are to operations and, and how much we value them. Um, we can very much do so in a direct way. So they moved forward with that. And I was very proud of the way that they did that. I'm very proud of the way that they have um, conducted themselves with respect to being sure that the folks who are at risk are being taken care of in terms of PPE and our own internal policies and protocols, being sure that we are ahead of where we need to be on, on, on paid sick leave, on, on paid leave for if folks are on quarantine, if they've been exposed to the virus or if they have the virus or if someone in their, in their home has the virus. So, um, it, it maybe goes all the way back to what I said about trust your gut, right? Um, the guiding principles, the things that got you to where you are, are very much the things that you can rely on when you're having to take these things as they come and, and respond to changes in the law and changes in the environment and changes in the attitudes of your people. Um, don't forget what, what got you, which sounds like this grand Disney style uh, a lesson learned, but I mean, it, it truly is that because it, it lets you see whether or not the organization truly is what they purport to be in, in good times. Yeah, my biggest advice on anything that we, have, that we haven't touched yet is uh, take care of yourself. Um, it's easy to lose track of the hours and the time when you're sitting here kind of in a home office. And as Carl mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the blend, uh, the uneasy blend between work and home. Um, but also it's just in terms of a mental health issue, you know, everyone has basically canceled their vacations. And so I, I will say our general counsel came to me and said, look, be sure y'all are taking your vacations. Take take a couple of days off just to, to unplug. Because right now there are two types of in-house counsel. There are those that are laid off and furloughed, uh, like many of my uh, in-house colleagues in the hospitality industries, um, and those that have, whose workload's doubled because the company's trying to turn on a dime uh, and, and do a number of initiatives. And so, uh, for those uh, in the former category, you know, my condolences, just hang in there. Uh, and for those of us in the latter category, just make sure you take the PTO that you need and just find a way to take time. I, I took two days the other day, uh, Friday and a, uh, Monday on Easter, and it was great because I found myself, it's a bit like the the frog, you know, the, the old metaphor of the frog being bold, slowly alive. You, you just don't know that you're getting burnt out until you're until you're almost there and then you're, you know, um, not doing justice to either yourself or, or your clients. And so I, I'd say just being mindful of, of that is, is my number one advice. Um, you know, we are offering like a lot of companies in the digital space, a lot of our products for free in various things, but, you know, as anyone in the law, you know, legal community would say, there's no, no such thing as free, right? There's some kind of license to be negotiated or something along those lines. And so, um, you know, as, as executives have pushed these projects and changed the business on a dime, uh, everything touches legal. And so, um, you know, we're all, we're all handling a lot and um, just work closely with your colleagues and, uh, you know, your leadership to communicate 
your status? Like, how are you feeling? Do you need time off? You know, and, and work with others. That's a great reminder. No, I think that's a really important reminder for our listeners. I appreciate it. Tabor, any final words? I would just echo echo both of those um, things, all of that. And, you know, it, it is, I mean, we're, I think we're all balancing um, being at home, being busy, um, trying to, you know, keep some semblance of normalcy uh, as life moves on. And we don't know how long, you know, we're going to be in this situation. But for me, I think it's really important that we try to, you know, you take things day by day, you take care of the task at hand. Don't, don't, try, don't try to look too far down the road if you can avoid it. Um, and get overwhelmed and, and let's just manage through real time sort of where we are. And, and like you guys said, you know, take your vacation if you can, take a couple of days off, try to remember when Saturday and Sunday actually come and treat them as such. Um, and, you know, just let's do the best we can to navigate through this and come out stronger on the other side. That's a great reminder that it is Friday afternoon, so the weekend is almost here for for for, uh, for the folks on this call. So I appreciate it. Well, that'll bring us to the end of the show. Uh, Carl, Ryan, Tabor, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I appreciate it. Um, if if folks want to follow or connect with you online, is there an easy way to to do that in this virtual world? Uh, you you guys on LinkedIn. Twitter, yeah, I know one of you mentioned your regular Twitter follower, right? Is that uh, <laughs> any suggestions for folks that want to follow you? I, I'm yeah, on LinkedIn. Is... I stay away from Twitter. Twitter, speaking of being overwhelmed, Twitter overwhelms me. Uh, but that's just me. But I, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter is a bit of a black hole. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, of course, uh, Ryan Brown, uh, uh, Director of Legal at Rosetta Stone. Yep, and this is Carl. Yeah, LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I'm with Titan America LLC, General Counsel Mid Atlantic Business Unit. There's not too many Carls out there, so pretty easy to find. Great. All right. Thank you, guys. I want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments about this episode or ideas for future episodes, you can find me also on LinkedIn or on Twitter uh, or send me an email directly. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.